Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. I am thrilled, Sherry, because we are here today to introduce our new program, Marriage Evolution. Pretty exciting, huh? It certainly is. It's a great idea. Well, I know that you aren't a super big fan of the name Marriage Evolution, but uh, it is derived from, you know, it's similar to the title of our book, Sober Evolution, and so we thought we would play off of that and go with ramming two other words together that are important, but don't necessarily naturally go together, marriage evolution, the they share the E. Pretty cute, huh? They yeah. share the E at the end of marriage and the E at the beginning of evolution. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone's looking for this program online, it, you can find it at marriageevolution.org, but it's M-A-R-R-I-A-G-E-V-O. L-U-T-I-O-N. Wow, that was a long word for me to spell. Very impressed. You're not the best speller. (laughs) I am a terrible speller. But yeah, the sharing of the E is the important thing to look for. And it's you can find it at .com or .org. We bought them both because guess what? Nobody else had interest in buying those domains. (laughs) Actually, the name's growing on me. Is it? Yeah. Okay. It's just a mouthful. Is that why you weren't sold up at the beginning? Honestly, I thought it kind of seemed a little lazy just taking sober evolution and marriage evolution. Yes. It seemed like we weren't being very thoughtful, but I think that it kind of solidifies the groups. Yes. You know, it kind of ties it all together. So instead of looking at it like being lazy, I think it's unifying. Oh, I love it. Yeah, and we need some unifying because we definitely have some brand problems between... Our Sober and Unashamed blog and Stigma's our nonprofit and our Untoxicated podcast and Sober Evolution's our book. How anyone ever finds us is just a complete miracle because we are all over the board. But I'm glad it's growing on you. That's good. But so that, that unification with the book Sober Evolution is important. The full title of the book is Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. And the book's divided into three parts, and the third whole section of the book is about that topic, recovering your alcoholic marriage, and that's what marriage evolution is all about. We've got our, here's some more name confusion, we've got our Shout Sobriety program for for alcoholics in early recovery, and then we've got our Echoes of Recovery program that a lot of people that come to our Echoes of Recovery program come from listening to our podcast episodes. So we hope we've got some people listening right now that are interested in the Echoes of Recovery program. That is for the loved ones of alcoholics because you and I have come to believe firmly that each individual in an alcoholic relationship has to recover individually. Everyone knows that the alcoholic's got to find sobriety and recovery individually. And in our world, that's what Shout Sobriety is all about. A few people, not many realize that the loved one, the wife, the spouse, the the parents, the kids, whatever of the alcoholic, they need their own form of recovery as well. There's a whole process involved. It's not easy. It requires this kind of connection and support that generally speaking doesn't exist out there. And that was something that actually surprised you and I 
in our process, we went straight from me and folk, all the focus was on me. Matt's got to get sober. Matt's got to get sober. What? How hard can Matt work to get sober? What does Matt need? What resources can we find for Matt? To working on the relationship. And we skipped the step of working on you, Sherry, until we were well down the road. We have rectified that and we're working on that. But that was something that we skipped for a long time. But that third piece of the puzzle is that the relationship needs to recover as well. And that's what the Marriage Evolution Program is all about. And so if if you want to, to get a feel for what the things we talk about, the topics, the things we work on in Marriage Evolution, you certainly can check out our book, Sober Evolution, and read that third section because that is completely what it's based on. The purpose of all of this, Sherry, the purpose of all of the stuff that we do You know, we say it all the time. We're not therapists. We're not psychologists. We're not medical professionals. We're not pretending to be that. We don't want to be that, frankly. So we're not here to prescribe to you what you need to do to remedy the ailment that you're facing as it relates to alcoholism. What we're here to do is to share our story and connect you with other people that can share their story and hope to speed things along for you. We wasted 10 years in my active addiction. So I drank for 25 years, the last 10 of which is what I would consider when I had crossed the line into alcoholism. And it was a pretty much a miserable 10 years. There were some good and enjoyable parts as well, obviously, but but it was mostly a miserable 10 years. And we, you and I, are determined to help people not have that be a 10-year period. And then, you know, we're four years into recovery now, and we want to help people make the progress that it's taken us four plus years to make. We want to help them make that progress much faster, too. Cut that in half, at least. Um, There's nothing speedy about recovery, but it doesn't have to to take forever. One of the things we talked about in our Echoes of Recovery discussion with the group this week was, you know, there's no roadmap for this stuff especially on the side of the loved one and the relationship. And that's really sad because literally millions of people have been through it before us, but because it's such a stigmatized disease and nobody talks about it and it's all done in hushed whispers and and a lot of people just never recover because they don't know that they they deserve to recover. There's just so many people that come along and face the addiction of their loved one. They face a marriage in turmoil and they don't know how to fix it, and the resources that are available are limited at best and ineffective in many ways, and that's just super sad because alcoholism is nothing new. It's been around for, what, thousands of years, right? Yeah. When you think about our what we've been through and what we're continuing to go through as we continue to get better, and you think about the people that come after us do you feel a sense of commitment to helping them because um, it shouldn't take as long as it took for us? What's what's your feeling on the timing piece of it? Um, yeah, I would like to make it shorter, but I know that there's patience and, and healing and time that needs to be involved, but a shorter process to find the right resources and having the connection and the community that's supportive and encouraging and 
you know, reminds you that you're not alone. That sort of um, piece I'd like to make a little easier for those people that are in that position. What did it do for you when you started to connect with other people that were the loved ones of alcoholics and you realized they had the same story you did? How did that feel? Well, I definitely, it made me, you know, obviously not feel like I was alone. Um, I was sometimes amazed at like how much more frustrated I would be with other people story, like what they put up with or what they dealt with. Um, and then, you know, then I would be encouraged by what I heard and what I learned from them and, and be like really proud of their progress. And so it just, it brought in a whole level of different feelings that I had instead of like, maybe just feeling sorry for myself and didn't know where to go, didn't know what to do, didn't know where to turn. Um, cause I know that we, we say there's a lot of limited resources out there, but I didn't feel like in my life going to an Al-Anon meeting would have worked because you wanted to keep it secret for so long. That's right. And, um, so then that sort of made me feel ashamed and deceptive. And then I kind of started just taking on that persona of, you know, not wanting to reach out. So, you know, I just want to help. I just hope that people, when they reach out, they don't feel ashamed or embarrassed or um, feel like they have to keep it a secret. So, you know. Because there's comfort in the connecting. Yeah. For people who are new to connecting and for people like you and me who are connecting with, you know, people over and over again. Um, it's like there's power in numbers kind of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's people think of it as like it's an unfortunate club to join, but if you're going to be in it, you might as well be in it with a lot of smart, loving, caring people. And that's one of the... That was one of the things that kind of... Sorry to step on you, but that was one of the things that I felt like I must be really stupid. I must be really lazy. I must have no self-worth to stay in a marriage where there was active alcoholism. And that's the thing I wanted to avoid. So then when I started meeting these people that's in our group and knowing about people that's in the shout sobriety side, they're not, you know, they're not uneducated. They're not stupid. They're not losers. They're not people, I mean, we're full of insecurities, but they're not people who on the outside look like they're full of insecurities. They have great jobs, great education, great thoughts. So it just kind of makes me feel emboldened that alcoholism just touches everyone. It does. And it seems as though there's a universal, universe, universalism, gosh, I'm struggling with that word, to the people that seek help. And even though it's difficult make those connections and try to find out if others have the same story that they do. And the universalism is they, they're, they're smart, go-getter, you know, um, aggressive, aggressive might be too strong a word, but people that won't accept that my lot in life is bad and it just is what it is for an answer because there, we've met a ton of, you know, honestly, frankly, the smartest people we've met in our lives have been 
through the Echoes of Recovery group, the people who are, um, you know, they're setting out to make, make a change as opposed to just living with it and whining about it. So it's very, it's a very impressive characteristic that people that seek connection have. Um, so, and we, and there's room for more. Water's nice. Jump on in. Echoes of recovery. I want to talk a little bit about the marriage recovery cycle, Sherry, the, the stuff that we've come to accept as, as a truth based on our experience and the experience of the others that we've worked with. First of all, first and foremost, has to be said over and over and over again, sobriety doesn't fix anything, but sobriety is a prerequisite for recovery. Now, sobriety is not a prerequisite for exploring things. It's not required for you to start to try to figure out how you can recover your marriage. And so when we talk about the new program that we're introducing today, Marriage Evolution, this is for couples. It's for both sides of the street, the drinker and the spouse of the drinker. This is a romantic relationship group. It's our Echoes of Republic Re, Echoes of Recovery program is for anyone who is the loved one of an alcoholic. Marriage Evolution is a little different. It is for marriages specifically, and that's why marriage is in the title. I mean, I guess if you're in a committed relationship and you've never gotten married, we'd still mm-hmm. welcome you into the group, but Generally speaking, we're talking about marriages, that kind of love. And while sobriety is a prerequisite based on everything that we know for you to recover that marriage, it is not a prerequisite for you to join our group and to start exploring because we want to meet you where you are. This stuff is hard and we don't want to, you know, have a bunch of hurdles you have to jump over that are some of the biggest hurdles of your life before receiving help. We want to be there for you at the very beginning to provide the kind of connection and support that you need. So back to that marriage recovery cycle, sobriety is a prerequisite. Um, and then after that, the next three things I kind of lump together, Sherry. I've kind of started doing this recently. I don't think you and I have actually talked about it. But I'm not sure that these have to be done in any specific order. But these are the next three things in some order that have to take place. The first one is the loved one, the spouse has to work on their own recovery program. I I think that's, again, that's universal. You can't just put all of your effort into the sobriety for the drinker and then ignore the pain of the loved one and start working on the relationship and expect that to go well. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. What did it feel like when we first started putting some time, attention, and resources into your recovery when I was, gosh, I was over a year sober when we did that, right? Uh, yeah. Um, How did that feel to be prioritized? Well, uh, obviously I'm struggling because I obviously didn't still even look at it as a priority if it's not like kind of coming, you know, coming to mind, um, I feel like I had to, kind of like how you've said the alcoholic has to be in enough pain, I feel like I was still really good at blaming you at the beginning of our trying to work on me, I feel like I was just really 
still kind of playing the victim um, and blaming you. So I feel like it. I'm stubborn, and so it took a long time to kind of get to that point of making it feel like it was doing any good or getting better. Um, this process is a long process. There's no question. Each step in the process is a long process. So the fact that it it took a while for you to start feeling better, that's that's not surprising. It might be sad for people to hear, but it, it shouldn't be surprising. And it hopefully won't be surprising for our listeners when they go through the process of trying to seek help for themselves. But did you get to a point where you were glad you were working on yourself? Um, well, that's tough. I was glad that I had started to feel a little better about things. So, but then, you know, kind of working on myself and working through not so much the resentments, but just working on my own stuff, that's hard and it sucks. And for some people, they like that discovery. Some people just like to shove it down. And I think our listeners know I'm a person who likes to shove it down. So it was uncomfortable for sure. Um, but I feel like it's been beneficial and very helpful. And it's scary for me. Um, but I think it's worth it. For sure. And I feel like in the long run, it's going to be impactful for the rest of my life. So hopefully the next, you know, 40 so years will be a lot better. Gosh, as always, that's a really thoughtful and deep answer. I'm impressed. I honestly expected you to go, yeah, I was glad when I started working on myself, but I'm glad you painted such a realistic picture not just for our listeners, but for me sitting across from you. But you would agree, I think, that even though it's hard, it's painful, it's not easy, it's something that you struggle with and continue to struggle with, it's still necessary, wouldn't you say, as part of the marriage recovery cycle? Yeah, it Could you imagine us making progress if we had never said, Sherry, let's get you into therapy. Let's start working on the issues that are bothering you. No, I I don't think we could because I remember, you know, early on, like when you were actively an alcoholic, actively drinking, but also in your mind you knew and you came to the realization that you had to quit. And there would be times you would quit and you say, as soon as the drinking's out of the way, it'll all be better. And, and I knew that I brought in a lot of stuff to the relationship that I carried over. And so I knew there was a lot more behind the scenes, um, that needed to come out. And it wasn't just taking the alcohol out. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff that I needed to, need to wade through and still I'm working on to get to a better place because I don't want to live, you know, the next however many years kind of not enjoying my life. You mentioned the word resentments. That's one of the other three, you know, pieces to this puzzle that, that come into the, the first section of marriage recovery. 
the the loved one, the spouse, the secondhand drinker, the wife, that person has to get help individually. Then as a couple, we had to work on resentments. We had to go through the the times when I drank too much and the way I behaved. And I had to sit and acknowledge your your truth as you explained it to me. It, the recovery process makes a great deal of commotion about the amends process. The saying, I'm sorry. And for you and many, many people, it, it wasn't about sorry. I had said I'm sorry hundreds, probably thousands of times. But when I said I was sorry and then repeated the behavior... The sorry didn't mean anything. So by the time I was sober, you didn't give a shit about my sorries. So the the resentment process for us was me sitting while you dredged up the true pain of instances where I overdrank and the way I talked to you and the way I behaved and the way I, my behavior caused you to behave. Just all of the trauma and for me to acknowledge it agree that your truth was the truth and agree to shoulder part of the blame for you so that you weren't left as the only one to, to carry that burden. I, I use the word blame. I shouldn't use the word blame. Burden. To carry that burden. So the going through the resentments in such a systematic way takes a lot of time. It's super painful. Lots of tears. Lots of shame on my side that I had to work through. But it's also necessary. If you don't deal with the resentments, you're never going to make progress in the marriage recovery cycle. And the other, the third of those initial steps are the kids. We had to address the kids. Now, it, I don't think it matters how young your kids are. I mean, I guess if they're like six months old, when you get sober, they might not have been impacted by your alcoholism. But even young kids are impacted because mommy's in a bad mood a lot or the answers they get are, are quick or they learn that there are times when they should or shouldn't, you know, bother dad. Um, so, you know, I thought we did a great job of protecting our kids from my alcoholism because we didn't very often argue in front of them. When we did, it was late at night behind closed doors and we primarily protected them. We didn't completely but I was a fool. Uh, kids pick up on everything. I mean, they think about it. When they're when they're young, they are just they are our shadows. They are glomming on to us and trying to soak up the world through through our experiences. And I'm here to tell you, we 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 meet with a lot of people who don't think they've impacted their kids. And I'm here to tell you, alcoholism has impacted your kids. So we got to deal with that. In our case, we started out by sitting down with our kids and having a long discussion very very painful lots of tears and then we've continued we we constantly talk about addiction and alcoholism and now we've roped lots of other subjects in like pornography and <coughs> and you know sex at an early age and all the things that parents don't want to talk about and kids don't want to talk about we we talk about now so those are, the, those are the three pieces to the beginning of the marriage recovery cycle. Finding help for the loved one, going through the resentments, dealing with the kids. And then those three things kind of have to happen before the, the next two, which is rebuilding trust 
and then eventually working on rebuilding intimacy. And those are hard. We're not going to go into any details on trust and intimacy today on this podcast. They're hard. They take a lot of time, a lot of patience. It doesn't matter how hard you want to work on them. It's just going to take time. I mean, working hard on them is a start and it's important. But even if you work a lot, it's going to take time. And so this marriage recovery cycle, this is what marriage evolution is all about. What the format for marriage evolution, we are welcoming couples, married couples, or romantically um, attracted couples who have dealt with alcoholism to meet with us. We're going to have 90-minute sessions once per month, and we're going to start with about 20 minutes of discussion mostly you and I discussing and sharing our universalisms, the things that we have come to believe as truth, not just in our relationship, but in the relationships of so many others. And we're going to share pieces of this marriage recovery cycle that we've learned. And that's going to be the first part of the sessions. And then we're going to do, we're going to do a writing prompt because we have learn through all the programs that we run that writing is just super powerful. When we give somebody a prompt, ask them to write to it, they go deeper, they're more vulnerable, they're more honest, they dredge up that stuff that you talked about, Sherry, that so many of us are so good at just pushing down, and they deal with it. And so the Marriage Evolution program will have no homework. You won't get the writing prompt in advance. You'll get it right there on the video call when we're doing these live sessions You'll have a few minutes to write to the prompt, and then we'll get back together and read our writing and provide each other encouragement and support. If we're asking you to be vulnerable, we sure as heck better support you after you've done so. It's a really therapeutic process. You're not a writer, Sherry, but can you talk a little bit about the writing prompt process and what you think about it? Um, I definitely do not worry about punctuation or sentence structure or anything of that nature. I don't... I, I definitely am just very basic with my writing, and it. but I think that that is okay um, for me as long as I get the feelings out. I definitely think that I uh, have a tendency to find myself, like, not even realizing, like, something that I've written. I mean, it's not like I'm writing and then I'm like, wow, when did I write that? It's like as I'm writing, something pops up. And I was like, I didn't even think about that being something that was affecting me um, or something that the prompt sometimes, it doesn't always jive, but it's that's where I'm going. Like it doesn't seem, my what I'm writing about doesn't correlate fully with the prompt, but that's where it took me. So that must be where my mind was wanting to go and um, where it was directed. So it must be something I was thinking about. So it's definitely like, feels like the things that are in the back of your mind come out when you're writing. What do you think about the word therapeutic? You feel like it's a therapeutic process for us Um, non-therapists? I I suppose therapeutic, yeah. Um, I kind of I don't know. I guess this the last time I was writing, I felt like I was kind of emptying some trash, 
I don't know. I felt like there was just stuff that was like bumbled up in my brain and causing me confusion. So I kind of felt like I dumped it out on paper and then I really haven't thought about that yet. I like so, I like that emptying the trash. So it's kind of like a jumbled mess of stuff that you knew you had to get out, but you ha- hadn't figured out how to organize it. And yeah, and so I feel like able to just yeah. let it out. When you have conversations, you kind of feel like you have to be organized yeah. and you have to be like focused. I know that some of the people in our group say they write their spouses' letters, and I know a lot of people do that, like when they're spouses in a treatment program but I think that not just writing you a letter but just writing all this stuff out and then maybe we'll talk about it but I haven't thought about it again after I got it out so it obviously was something that was just in there swirling around and confusing me yeah so I guess therapeutic is um a proper term writing is powerful and that is part of the marriage evolution program All right, let's talk about some of these universalisms we've learned. I love that word universalism, even though I struggle to say it lately for some reason. We've gotten better. When we talk about universalisms, what we are saying is we have not done any kind of scientifically uh, legitimate research projects. We haven't, you know, called studies in in a randomized, uh, called subjects in for a randomized study and, and, uh, you know, recorded... Data. Yeah, no, no data clinical collection. data. But what we have done is interacted with, at this point, hundreds of couples. And so we might, what we've learned might not be scientifically significant, but don't tell me it's not significant because there's so many things that, you know, the responses, the reactions are 100%. They happen every single time in the hundreds of people and, and relationships we've, we've become accustomed to knowing. And so... When we talk about universalism, that's what we're talking about. This isn't just, oh, it happened to Sherry and me, so therefore it happens to everyone. This is stuff that we've learned from others happens to them, and it just also happens to have happened to us. So, love and alcohol can't coexist. That's right off the top. I don't know if you have been a like big-time moderate drinker, like legitimately only drink a couple times a month, if you've been that way from the beginning of your relationship. I don't know if this statement applies to you, but I think this statement is universal among people who are in relationships that have battled alcohol abuse. So if there has been abusive drinking in your relationship, love and alcohol just can't coexist. And I feel adamant about that. And we run into lots of people who who talk about how their spouse is trying to cut down or their spouse is trying to control it. You know, we wish you the best of luck. Uh, that is not going to work for you. That I am as confident about that as I am that the sky is blue. And y- your challenge is how quickly can you move past that, that hope, that clinging to this impossible hope that you can have alcohol stay in your life and still have your romantic relationship thrive. How quickly can you move past that and get onto the healing part? Because you got to, if you can't accept that love and alcohol can't coexist, then there's no healing for you. Now, I know I'm very arrogant and adamant about things when I say things like that. Sherry, what do you think? Do you, do you believe, do you believe that when I say love and alcohol can't coexist in a relationship where alcohol abuse has been present? I definitely think that um, 
the kind of deep, um, intimate love that you need in a relationship, um, uh, like a marriage relationship can't exist because alcohol like hides the person. Alcohol puts distance between the two parties. Um, there's hurt and pain and then there's numbing and covering up. So there's so many feelings that, you know, there's so many, I guess, you know, roadblocks to keep you from connected causes that to not happen. I mean, you may love the person that you're with, but you can't be in a loving relationship per se. That love can still be there somewhere, but it's not active. And if it's a really, you know, if it's really active abuse of alcoholism and alcohol, then, you know, there's a lot of hurt and pain and on the other, you know, on both sides. So if you're licking your own wounds and, you know, you just can't be there for another person, I guess is a way to say that. I think you did a good job explaining it. And kind of softening the language and sounding less arrogant than me. But I'm going to go ahead and mark you down as we agree on that one. Love and alcohol can't coexist. But thanks. Thank you for explaining it in the detail that you did. I think that's really important. Okay, number two on the universalisms list. Blame the alcohol. Uh, It's not the drinker's fault. It's not the spouse's fault. The alcohol is the toxin that's changing the brain chemistry. So why we want to blame the humans that are the victims is just beyond me. It cracks me up. I know that we're all about accountability and I love that. I'm about accountability too. But you don't have to own all the blame for all the turmoil when the poison that you were ingesting was was causing this change in your personality and your brain structure that created the turmoil. So I'm all about blame the alcohol. And, you know, it, it goes both ways. We hear this a lot, and I'm gonna. I'm also gonna say on this podcast, if you're the drinker and you're in early sobriety and you don't understand why your wife is cold and distant, I'm here to tell you your wife is not a bitch. Your wife is not the reason for your alcoholism. She didn't drive you to drink, and you know it's not it's not her fault that you drank too much. Uh, it's not her fault that the recovery is taking forever. Uh, alcohol changes people. The people don't change themselves. Alcohol changes people. So the more time we can spend blaming the alcohol and the less we can spend blaming each other, the better the recovery is going to go. And and that, you know, I just spent, what, 45 seconds on that? That is way, way, way harder than, than just saying it. Um, our most recent podcast, episode 75, the one right before this one, when we had Anna and Mitchell on from We Are Recovery, they talked about separating the addict from Mitchell. And, and Anna talked about how, it, in her eyes, it was two different people. The addict was over here and Mitchell was over here. And they did a really good job and it's been a key to their recovery. But it is super hard. We've gotten a ton of feedback on that episode. And the feedback has all been, oh, that episode was great. We love how she did that. Now, how exactly do I do that? Because separating the addiction from the person... Easier said than done, and that's the kind of stuff that we work on in the Marriage Evolution program. I also think that being the loved one, you have to you you have to blame the alcohol, right? But you also have to... I'm not saying there needs to be a fourth person, but you should also throw yourself in there with blaming that third person, the addiction, or that third entity, the addiction, because 
I know that I came quicker around to blaming the alcohol when it came to your behavior, but I didn't, you know, sometimes I still struggle to see and blame the alcohol with my behavior. Ooh, yes. Because I think, well, I was the one that was sober. I could have handled myself better. Um, you know, I could have changed the the outcome of the situation by doing things different. I wasn't the one that was ingesting the poison, but I mean, I was. What an excellent point. So it's hard for you as the secondhand drinker, as the loved one, as the spouse, to blame the alcohol for your behavioral changes because you didn't ingest it. Yeah. But it's it, it's it's simple. It's simple, but it's really, really hard, right, at the same time. Right, because you're looking at the person who's drinking. They were the ones drinking it. You weren't. But, but You were my sober. Behavior, you were responsible. My behavior created in you reactions that were, they weren't naturally part of you. Right. To fight back the way you did and and to protect, you know, the kids and protect yourself. You shouldn't have to go through that. Yeah, that brain chemistry and those flight and fight responses and all of those, you know, cortisone, cortisol, you know, all those things that you're better with the terminology of, like, all of that came into play. So it changed who I was. It changed my brain. It changed my um, persona, even though I wasn't the one drinking it. So I just cautioned all the drinkers that are listening, the hopefully ex-drinkers that are listening, your wife's not a bitch, don't blame her. But we also need to talk to the spouses directly and say, don't blame yourself. Don't carry that shame. The alcohol caused this even though you didn't ingest it. I'm so glad you brought that up. <coughs> yeah. That's such an important point, Sherry. Thanks. Well, when we were back towards the beginning and talking about the steps, and you were talking about, you know, the resentments, and you had to sit and listen and, you know, kind of feel that shame. It's also the shame for the spouse, shame for the loved one. Because there's shame there, too. So, yeah, that's why I think that's why I think it was harder for me to accept that the addiction, the third entity in the relationship also is connected to me. It is hard. I'm glad you're there now, though. It's important. Here's another universalism. This one, this one might not be quite as universal or, or maybe we just don't have enough data collected yet, but it's pretty universal. The attraction is gone once, you know, sobriety doesn't fix the way the loved one, the spouse, feels about the disgusting behavior of the person that they've they've just gone through this alcoholic period with. So in our case, specifically, when I stopped drinking and I was like, ta-da, look at me, I'm sober now. I'm, you know, God's gift to the marriage, Sherry. Here I am. Aren't you glad? I quit drinking for you. You should be so proud of me. And you were still, and, you know, if we're being honest, in, in ways you still are disgusted with me. Um, and that's, you know, it, that that was something I didn't understand and I struggled with for a long time. I, I thought it was my physical appearance that you weren't attracted to. I thought I needed to get a different haircut or lose weight. And... What I, what I have come to realize that I didn't realize then was the lost attraction has to do much more with the emotional, the crushing of the emotional connection between us and the, 
the disgusting behavior, and the ignoring your opinions when it came to the fact that I was drinking too much. And, you know, while my parenting was decent while I was an active alcoholic, it wasn't as good as it should have been. And the fact that I sometimes drove after drinking with the kids in the car, I mean, that's a big one that was just a complete turnoff. So we as alcoholics, when we get sober, in my case and lots of cases, um, we just go right back to being attracted to our spouses and like, all right, hey, I'm sober now. Let's let's get it on. What's What's going on? And for the spouse that has spent years, and in many cases, in our case, decades, growing unattracted to the person, uh, that light switch isn't going back on anytime soon. <coughs> the, the attraction is gone and sobriety doesn't fix that. Would you agree with that? I mean, I, I know that you agree with it. Would you like to say something about that? Um, I think you pretty much covered it. I would just say that also like we were the the caretaker in a way too. Not just for the kids, but like maybe, you know, if you have kids, not the caretaker just for those, but the caretaker for the alcoholic. So you were the ter- caretaker for me? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, or you know, just like watching you like spiral down and I th- you know, in one of our podcasts we talked about the 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 heightened ego and um then the slobbery mess like those um ups and downs and neither things. of which is attractive right like it just and that you're usually the alcoholics usually doesn't remember the situations so the sober person has those memories stuck in and planted in their brain and i don't know if people are like me they just add up they don't go away. They just add up. So it just compiled yeah. to, the, to have that unattraction. Yeah. And that, and what, what, what do you say about the light switch? Again, pretty universal with the people that we know. You, you can't just, you can't just spin it around and go, oh, okay, now I'm attracted to you because you stopped drinking. Yeah. It takes I a mean, long time. I think like some of us, I mean, I feel like some of us in some of the episodes that we dealt with, with your drinking, um, and if you would get on a rant and it wouldn't even be maybe about me or us in particular, but something that you had a strong opinion on, uh, if sometimes you could be so negative and I was like, wow, you know, that negativity was really hard to hear when usually you're a really positive person. So it made me think, gosh, is he like bipolar? So then I had that, you know, like it just seemed like it was the Jekyll and Hyde situation and bipolar and that's a very, and I put, it put me like in kind of a scared state that I didn't want to be vulnerable and open with you. I didn't want to connect with you because I didn't know what was going to happen. That's interesting. That's a great lead into the next universe, universalism that I want to talk about, which is triggers. So in a way, when I would fly back and forth between positive and negative, that would be a trigger for you because my emotional variation was very dramatic when I was drinking. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. And then in early sobriety, you know, too. Like, Oh, yeah. I mean, you, know, you weren't... By the time that you got to full-time sobriety, um, you were sad, 
you know, in some ways. But you were definitely more even keeled. But I didn't know when that was going to rear back up. Yeah. You know. Yeah, learning to deal with emotions for the first time when you can't just drink them away is... It's a brutal process and it definitely throws you into these highs and lows that are, you know, unnormal. They're, they're normal for a alcoholic in early sobriety, but they're not, it's not the way, it's not the way I've come to experience emotional variations now that I've got some time under my belt. Like I, yeah, I have sad days and I have happy days and I have excited days and I have nervous days and sometimes I'm nervous and I don't know why I'm nervous and you know, sometimes I'm just in a good mood for no particular reason. That all happens. That's normal human stuff. But in early sobriety, it's much more dramatic. And it's, I think, more than anything else, just because we've never had to deal with those emotions before. So we don't know how to do it. But so, yeah, those fluctuations you talk about are big. So let's talk about those triggers. Another universalism. The triggers go both ways, too. I think this is important for people to understand. Everyone knows that an alcoholic in early sobriety is going to be triggered to drink. You know, for me, some of the biggest triggers were like, you know, when it would get to Saturday afternoon and I had worked hard all week and I had probably gotten a few things done on Saturday morning and it was sunny and, you know, warm outside. And in back in my drinking days, that would be classic beer drinking on the back porch kind of weather. Just get out there and soak in the rays and drink as much beer as my body could handle. And so when I'd get to that same point, a Saturday afternoon in the sun, and I was no longer drinking, I just didn't know what to do with myself. Like, how do I celebrate my accomplishments of the week and this beautiful day that we're experiencing, if not with hops and barley in my hand? So that was a very triggering thing. And that's the kind of trigger that I think most people think of when they think of alcoholism you know, that might not be the exact situation for you or for the alcoholic in your life, but things like that that trigger you. Maybe, you know, watching football or firing up the grill or or maybe you play in a rec league sports with, with your friends and after the game you guys typically used to go to get beers. Like those are the kinds of triggers. Or, or the stress-driven triggers or depression, you know, oh my gosh, I can't handle this emotional stuff that's impacting me. So that's a trigger to drink. Those are the triggers that people think of when they think of alcoholism. But we're here to say the loved ones have tons of triggers too. And they are very real. Um, and is it safe to say, Sherry, that your triggers are, were primarily driven by my behavior? So if I did something that reminded you of when I was drinking, it would trigger you to go into like the fight or flight mode like you said your defenses would go up and you'd be you'd be in a little bit of a panic even though even if you were confident on a conscious level that I wasn't going to drink it would still you'd brace yourself how do you feel about that oh i wow i don't i guess by the time i felt even kind of aware or knowledgeable about triggers because we did take so long to kind of step into um, sobriety as an active process. Um, I guess I, I wasn't, maybe I was more nervous like in the beginning about like your mood swings. Because I kept thinking, oh, he's going to give in because it's just not, you know, it's not working. Um, now, 
I feel like my triggers would be like when I had to talk to you about something because I'm not good about that. And if I had to bring something up that I didn't know how you were going to behave because I hadn't been used to you having a more even keel and more reasonable and rational brain. That I think is, and maybe still is some of my biggest triggers. Like if I tell him exactly what I'm thinking or exactly what's going to need to happen or this, you know, huge orthodontist bill, boy, that could spiral into something really bad. So I feel like for me, that's, that's the biggest. But then every once in a while, there will just be, you know, an occasional time where I'll think, oh, wow. You know, he could, that could be a trigger for him. That but could the be a trigger that, for me. The ones that you were talking about that are a trigger for you, like talking to me about something that's heavy or, or I don't know, disappointing, those... I mean, that's, I'm again, really glad you brought up that specific example because it's so heavy and it impacts both of us because once I've gotten some serious time in sobriety, I want to be the person that you go to. I want to be the person that you turn to. And when you're still struggling to turn to me with things like that, it hurts me. It, it, it hurts me to know that you're afraid to talk to me about a big orthodontist bill for one of the kids. Because I say to myself and I say to you, when was the last time I flew off the handle about a big expense? I mean, it was literally years and years ago. And, but, but it, it just the time doesn't just make it go away. And that is the exact <laughs> point in talking about triggers. And it becomes They're a, real and they go both directions. Yeah. And I guess because we just like intake that learned behavior and so that's where the recovery of the loved one has to start taking place because I have to be able to trust you and trust myself that I can share what I'm really thinking or you know if it's something you and I disagree on and that you're not going to fly off the handle. So I think at this point it's safe to say that you know I'm not going to fly off the handle but you know, like logically, that I'm not going to fly off the handle. But emotionally, you still don't know, and that's that's yeah. where the trigger comes in. Yeah, I still hold back some things. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's painful. It's hard. It's also universal, and so don't beat yourself up if this is something that you're experiencing in your relationship. And this is the kind of stuff we're going to work on in the marriage evolution program. And I, I, I just want to add to like that piece about um not opening up to you it's also like if you're um a child of an alcoholic you know um like your parents were affected and the way they raised you so there's that learned behavior from so many years ago yeah um and i know that even as the child of an alcoholic yeah it can make you struggle in your romantic relationships yeah yeah good point yeah so so that's why i guess you know uh, recovery for me this is scary because it goes so far back. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you and I prefer the word discovery. This was a, a term coined by Jane, Jane from our Echoes of Recovery group, who's also been on the Intoxicated podcast. We encourage you to search for her story in the archives of the Intoxicated podcast. But Jane prefers the word discovery to recovery, and so do we. And the reason is recovery 
just kind of leads to this belief that we're going back to some place that we've been before. We're recovering. We're we're reinstilling the person that we used to be, the people that we used to be. Yeah. And you and I know, again, universally, this is a fact. Discovery is a better word because we're going forward to being people that we were never before. We are. Alcoholism changes people. It changes people for the worse, and then. Uh, in the process of healing, it changes people for the better. But so we're going to a place where you are different and I am different. And in this process of discovery, a painful universalism is that compatibility is not a guarantee. Many, many people start the courting process like you and I did. We were in our early 20s. We drank. We we went to the bars when if you know with our friends and big groups and everyone drank if we did go on a date just the two of us we'd go to a restaurant and we'd have drinks with our dinner we would have you know drinks as a part of the romantic process as a part of sex process um so we drank a lot and often and constantly when we were getting to know each other it lowered our inhibitions it made us move faster in the relationship than we probably should have. And now here we are, you know, 25 years together. And just in the last couple of years, we've started to really get to know each other. Because the alcohol has gone. It, it's like it's like we're naked for the first time. We've ripped the, the costumes off and here we are. And we've got to decide what we think about each other. And that's a super scary process for a lot of people. And a lot of people in this discovery process find that yes alcohol has changed me yes alcohol has changed my spouse this isn't the person I thought I was married to and I've actually got to decide whether I actually like this person or not and you know it's it's not it's not as simple I mean god we were so naive Sherry we thought get the alcohol out of there and we'll have this blissful relationship and will fall back into each other's arms and it's just not like that. I'm I'm not at all the person you met. You're not at all the person I met. And so part of this marriage recovery process, part of this discovery process is discovering whether we actually like the person we're married to or not. That's hard and painful. Don't you agree? Yes. What is it is it fair to call that a universalism? Do you feel like there are a lot of people, especially on the loved one side, that struggle with, you know, and and actually this leads to the last one on my list of universalisms, so let me bring that in and then then you can kind of address it all. Um, The last thing I was going to say is that's universally true is the importance of patience. And There are no quick fixes, no silver bullets. Sobriety doesn't fix anything, although it is a prerequisite. But here's the other interesting thing about patience. When your spouse gets sober, when I got sober for you, Sherry, and for myself, of course, but when I got sober, on the one hand, you got what you wished for. You got what you wished for for years and years and years and years. And then you've got to look at it and say, okay, I got what I wished for. But do I want it? Do I want this thing that I got, even though it was the thing I wished for? And that's where the patience comes in. Whether ultimately 
a couple is compatible or not when when they get into the sobriety phase and they're discovering who each other is after alcohol has changed them whether they're compatible or not knowing that takes a long time takes a lot of patience you've got to see where the relationship's going to grow uh, in many cases with the people that we work with there are kids involved and so it's not even just about whether they like each other. It's about whether they like each other at least enough to stay together for the kids. And then there, you know, then there's that whole debate. It, if if you're just staying together for the kids, are you actually doing more damage for the kids because they know that you're just staying together for the kids? So it's a big mess. It can be a big mess. And I would just urge patience in the process. Um, Again, you're not recovering to who you both used to be. You are discovering this new person that you are and that, that you're married to. And you've got to give that time to figure out how you feel about it and how your spouse feels about it. What do you think about all that, Sherry? All that rambling I just did. It's hard to talk about, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's hard to talk about. I think... Um that you're right you're not recovering to who you were so the person that you fell in love with was you know either hidden and clouded by alcohol and then you know active alcoholism made them disgusting to you and now you've got this new person this person that's learned a bunch of things they learned you know about brain chemistry and um learned about better eating habits and it's made all these discoveries that maybe you know, you're not ready to change, and so that brings in a level of, um, I guess, frustration maybe, um, the exuberance that I think sometimes the um, alcoholics, as they're going through discovery and they're getting a better place, we're just kind of not used to maybe that, so it's like, whoa, who are you? You're not the person that I've been comfortable around for so long. Um and, you know, their, obviously their, ha their uh, hobbies and stuff will change. So, you yeah, know. You can't and, keep beer drinking as yeah, a hobby when you're not so, drinking anymore. Like, you know, so like that could be another thing. And just, you know, like the, instead of thinking, oh, my husband's just rambling about this political thing because he's drunk but then you realize oh he really does like one of him <laughs> not talking about you sure Matt. you're not <laughs> sure you're you know not. or opinions like one of our echoes said you know once they're sober they have opinions and i had always kind of blown them off so you have a lot you have to like get to know each other again and i know you and i decided that we would start doing swing dance lessons and we did that for a while, but that was a whole, like, learning experience. Just, like, you know, my comfort level was pushed, pushed, pushed. And you wanted to be in the center of the... But that's how you... that. But that was actually kind of how you always were. Well, there was more room in the center. <laughs> Nobody was there. I wanted to sit back and be mad at the people that were in front of me so I couldn't yeah, see. Yeah, you kept getting your toes stepped on, and <laughs> you wouldn't move to where there was more room. But that was, like, just... That was, like, an educational wake-up piece, like... That, but that was a piece of you that that showmanship in a way that I'm not afraid to be out here. I'm paying money to learn to do this. I want to be learning it and doing it. And 
So that kind of faced me with a little bit of uncomfort, whereas, you know. But I got over it, and then COVID hit, and we can't go. But I think that you just have to, like, learn each other over again. Yeah, no question. No question. That was very long. I feel like I took on your role of being long-winded. You did great. It was a good ex- good explanation. And so these are the kinds of heavy topics that we are covering in the Marriage Evolution Program. This is not us just cheerleading for people or telling you everything you're doing is right. And it's it's a rosy pathway to nirvana of marriage blissfulness because that would be unrealistic and and not our experience and it wouldn't fit into the universalisms that we've learned. But so if 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 you are in a marriage that needs to recover from alcoholism and you are at least trying to work on yourself and your spouse is at least trying to work on his or herself then we encourage you to also as a third thing that you need to work on, work on the relationship and a great place to do that is in our marriage recover in our marriage evolution program. You can check us out at marriageevolution.org and again remember marriage and evolution share the same e. So m a r r i a g e v o l u t i o n.org. You can find more details. It's just the commitment is one 90 minute period per month and uh, there is a we do require a donation to our nonprofit our 501c3 nonprofit stigma for participation um, but I think it's going to be well worth it it's going to be serious topics hard-hitting topics and we are we really hope that the participants that come come along with us get a lot out of it and we hope to learn as much from them as they hopefully learn from us So thanks for having this heavy discussion with me today, Sherry. Thanks for walking through all the universalisms and the marriage recovery cycle. Important stuff. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, We're ready for you at ShoutSobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.